The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 77 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. The Popscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations where we examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and with the world around us. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to therapist changemakers. You may recall back in episode 68, we talked with Dara Hoffman Fox about understanding gender identity. Today, we're diving in a little deeper with Sarah Gilbert, the owner of Transitions Therapy in Manchester, Connecticut. Sarah's mission is to help people author their unique identities. She specializes in working with teens and adults who identify as transgender, as well as those who love them. In this episode, we're talking about the support that exists for those who question their gender identity and the people who love them. Sarah believes that when people live in their true identities, they come alive and inspire others to do the same. But along with the self-discovery process comes a lot of uncertainty, and there can be intense grief knowing that life is not going in an easy direction that may have been expected, and that the people around them are also affected and disrupted. One of the takeaways from today's conversation, there's no one plan for transitioning that fits everyone. There's no set formula. This journey is an individual one. Before we begin, I'd also just like to make note that there's a reason that this episode was delayed, and that's that I was up against a learning edge. And thankfully, my guest Sarah and my past guest Dara have helped me to see how important language is when we're talking about trans people. There's an amazing style guide that came to my attention. It's called The Radical Copy Editor's Style Guide for Writing About Transgender People. It's a really wonderful guide that helps us focus on how to practice care towards people whose experience of gender may be different from our own. And so on that note, let's dive in. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Thank you. Me too. I'm really honored to be here. I'm so grateful you're here. And I think this is such an interesting conversation that we are about to have. You work with trans and gender questioning people as well as their spouses and their partners. That is primarily who you serve in your practice. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's my passion. It's the work that I kind of fell into and I love to do it. And what would you say is at the crux or the core of this work? You know, I think my tagline on my website really sums it up best. I help people to author their identities. I help people to look at, question, and evaluate perhaps the identities that they've been told they have to have throughout their life and looking at where they're at now and how they want to edit that, how they want to step closer into their more authentic sense of self. Well, gee, that sounds like you could be talking to almost anyone. That's true. Yes, there are, there are definitely. And that's why I love this work. I mean, I specialize in serving the trans community, but the themes are really far reaching in terms of, you know, just kind of managing this tension between trying to live your true self versus what other people might expect or want from you. Oh, so much. So much. And so you were talking to me a little bit before we started recording about this fluidity that kind of emerges around the binaries. Mm-hmm. of our sexes. Can you speak to that a little bit? The, the thing you were telling me about the water? You had a really oh, great yeah, illustration. Absolutely. Yeah. So I went to this amazing training a couple years back where the presenter talked about gender, made the metaphor between gender and water. So the way he described it was fish that are in a fish tank are surrounded by water all the time. They're not necessarily aware of it because that's just what they know. It's entirely surrounding them throughout their existence. And gender in our society is like that. It's around us constantly from the moment we're born, really, even before that, right? Like when a woman is pregnant, typically one of the first questions that she is asked is, oh, what are you having? Are you having a boy or a girl? So this conversation, this, this binary is kind of put on us right from the start And it's just around us everywhere in terms of toys that children play with, clothing, colors that are acceptable, mannerisms, body language. We're really kind of socialized to believe that it's just kind of one or the other, male or female. But in fact, 
in the reality, people have a wide spectrum of experiences and existence. So that's what I really love about the work I get to do is I help people explore the full spectrum of experiences and preferences because it's not just black or white or boy or girl or man or woman. There's so much in between. There's so much interesting and rich things to explore there. Mm, So rich. And I think that there's definitely stuff that we can all take away and learn from this. But I really want to talk more about how you got into this work, because I think that also is a really important piece for the rest of us. You started this work because you were doing some research back in grad school, correctly? Yeah, it was one of the many happy accidents of my life, I would say. So it was towards the end of my time at uh, UConn School of Social Work, where I was getting my master's. And we had to do a group project on cultural competency and diversity. And a friend of mine who was in my group suggested, you know, how about we put a different spin on it? Why don't we talk about cultural competency and working with the transgender community? Because at the time that was kind of lacking in our program that Mm -hmm. to have that specific focus. So it was really interesting to me. And the more I learned about it, the more I was just intrigued and just kind of wanted to learn more. I found it really fascinating. The more you kind of dissect gender and its role in our societies, it's just so complex. So as I continued, you know, in the nonprofit world, working as a therapist, I ended up being kind of the only one at the agency that had any knowledge of gender identity work. And so I ended up getting more clients filtered to my caseload. And as I learned from them and got to know more of their experiences, I just kind of wanted to learn more. And so I've continued to go to conferences and trainings and read and watch videos and podcasts because I just find it really fascinating. And now I'm really thankful that that is what I get to specialize in in my private practice. Yeah. Tell me, what would you like to see be some big shifts in regards to diversity and cultural competency within society, but also within the therapist community? Yeah, that's a really great question, because one of the things that I'm shifting into in my practice this year is offering more trainings. So I guess what I would like to see is something that I feel is already starting in terms of people being open to have this conversation and learn about the wide spectrum of experiences in terms of gender identity and expression. I find that really encouraging. I think for people to, in this profession, to realize the extent to which that affects so many people, this binary society that we are in, and to look at the experiences that people are actually having, whether they identify specifically as a trans female or a trans male, or just gender questioning or non-binary, I think it's really important for the therapist community to just kind of be aware of these experiences and the wide range in which people can identify and express themselves. Do you find that any of those terms are things that people might not already be enough aware of that maybe we should go into them a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I do think it gets a little confusing sometimes. And I'm glad you pointed it out because this is what I talk about all day long. So I'm kind of in my own little bubble with that at times. I did a training last month for therapists as an introduction to transgender affirmative care. And that was definitely what people appreciated is kind of the terminology and kind of learning a little more about, okay, how people might identify themselves and what does that mean? So let's go there. Let's start by talking about the different ways that people might identify themselves. And there's quite a continuum here. It's not just boy, girl, male, female. There's a lot in here. It actually makes me think, have you heard, you might know more about this, but in a lot of more ancient traditions, I've heard of it in more Native American traditions. I've heard of it in kind of the Kabbalistic Jewish spiritual traditions where they identify like six to eight different genders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... I do think that that's really interesting. It's interesting how around the world there's such different awarenesses and perceptions. So so the terms that I typically come up with in my practice that I hear about would be people identifying as either gender questioning, they're kind of maybe aware that something's a little different compared to their their peers or their family members, but they're not quite sure what that means. And transgender is kind of an umbrella term for anyone who's gender identity, their inner sense of their gender does not match the sex that they were assigned at birth. Meaning, you know, when a baby is born and a doctor looks at a baby's anatomy, they make the determination like it's a boy or it's a girl. So the transgender term is umbrella term. And then there's a lot underneath that. 
And what I think it's important for people to know is that the terms are always changing. You know, I think it's important for people to not put that pressure on themselves to be a master of the vocabulary of the trans community because it's always changing, number one. And number two, people can have very personal and different meanings as far as what that term means. So when I'm meeting with someone, you know, I ask them how they identify. And then I I ask them, even if I think I know what it means, I'm always sure to ask them, what does that term mean to you? So I think it conveys respect for the breadth of experiences that people can have. And it also conveys that I want to be really clear that I'm understanding exactly what that person is experiencing in this moment and what they need from me. So yeah, I'm just thinking of some other terms that I often hear. One that people often get confused about is uh, trans men and trans women. So a trans female or a trans woman is someone who was assigned male at birth, but they identify as a woman. And conversely, a trans man or a trans male is someone who is assigned female at birth and now identifies as a male. So was there any other terms that you'd like me to go over? Maybe more of the non-binary terms. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so gender non-binary, gender queer. I've heard gender awesome sometimes, too, which is great. Non-binary means that I they're think kind I of somewhere. Claim that one. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> great one. Gender awesome. I think so we're all gender awesome, though, aren't we? we? I think so. I like to think I'm awesome. That's kind of my favorite word. So if people are identifying as non-binary, what that means is that they don't fit into either category, that they're kind of somewhere in between or possibly neither. If people are not really identifying with any clear sense of gender, I've heard some people identify themselves as non-binary, and I've also heard some people identify themselves as agender, meaning that they don't have any sense of gender whatsoever. Let's get clear here, though, because that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that they're asexual. It doesn't mean that they have no sexuality. It means that they're not identifying with a gender. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you bring up that point because that is another, I think, a very important thing for everybody to be clear on, whether it's therapists or just anybody out in the world, that gender identity and sexual orientation are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. Your gender identity is your inner sense of who you are. And your sexual orientation or attraction is who you're attracted to. But these things do get spoken about together. I mean, when we're talking Mm -hmm. about like LGBTQIA, we're talking about how people identify themselves. We're also in some cases talking about how they identify their sexual orientation. Yeah, absolutely. I read a piece recently that I think put it really well that And it makes sense to me, the two, of course, are linked. This piece described it as sexual orientation or attraction is experienced through the lens of someone's gender identity. Slow down and say that again. Yes. That's important. Sexual, yeah, sexual orientation or attraction is experienced through the lens of our gender identity. So it's how we see ourselves in the world that also has to do with how we see ourselves in connection with others. Yes, absolutely. I wish I could remember where exactly I read that. So I don't want to claim credit for that. That's not what I wrote. But yeah, it's absolutely kind of understanding how the two are related, but they're not the same thing. And oftentimes this comes up in my work especially in working with spouses or partners, because, you know, for example, I'll just use myself as an example to illustrate what this means. I identify as a cisgender female. I identify also as heterosexual because I am a female and I am attracted to men. And were I to perhaps go through a transition if I identified as transgender and if I wanted to transition and experience my gender identity as a trans male, I might then identify myself as homosexual because I'm still attracted to men. Mm. So does that make sense? Yeah, I think it really does help to clear up the differences that, you know, even if you are somebody who decides that you want to transition, where that really makes sense, it fits your identity and the way that you see yourself. And I want to talk more about that, all Mm -hmm. of that. There's a lot that just got jumbled into there and I want to unpack it with you. But Mm -hmm. if you decide to transition or when you decide to transition, 
if you're in a partnership, the parameters of that partnership, they're going to be affected, of course. And I want to go there too. But the fact that you've chosen this partner might not shift. Yes, absolutely. That's a question that comes up a lot when I'm working with spouses or partners is, okay, so how do I identify now? What does this mean for me? If the person that I married, say, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, if I've always known that person as a man, and now they're transitioning and telling me that they're really uh, female and they want to transition, what does that mean for me? How do I identify? Do I even have to identify differently and kind of weighing one's personal importance of that label versus how much other people might need that label or other people might be asking for that clarification. It's really a huge, huge stressor for a lot of people. I imagine there's a million different answers to those questions also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So help me unpack this. There's two different sides to unpack even, right? There's the, mm-hmm. the unpacking of the person who's gender questioning and what they choose to do with their identity and how they choose to live their life. And then there's their partner who once the gender questioning partner makes a choice and decides to transition, their partner, their identity also shifts. And I really want to dive deeply into these two elements here and really unpack them. I think it's really important. So can you take us through this a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. Well, let's start with when someone is questioning their gender. Yeah. When might this begin? How might this show up? Is it something that, you know, I'm going through a midlife crisis and now I'm thinking about? Is it something that I've always known but haven't really admitted to myself? Is there a continuum in here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to go back to something you mentioned that I thought was really important in what you said as you were framing that question was you talked about how people, what they may choose to do with their identity. I think that's really important because oftentimes, whether it's the trans person themselves or the other family members that they have come out to, there can be this assumption of, oh, okay, you're choosing this now. You're choosing to be trans. And that's not it at all. This is who people are. And the choice is what they choose to do with that identity, how they want to express that, if they want to express that. So I wanted to just highlight, I'm really glad that you framed it that way. Because oftentimes, especially from spouses and partners, I will hear, oh, great. So now they're choosing this now. Well, they're not choosing to be trans. They are probably choosing to tell you now, or perhaps they've had to tell you because perhaps you have found out in some way. So just kind of coming back to your question, there's a wide range of experiences for people who identify as trans. And I'm so glad you asked about this because I think that the dominant narrative is that people who are trans know and express it at the age of three or four. They're insistent that, you know, as a young child, you know, if they're assigned female at birth, they're insistent, I'm a boy. And while that is true that for some people that is the experience, that's not always the case. And so there are clients I have worked with who maybe as puberty happens, as all of those hormonal shifts are happening and the awkwardness of the body changes, that may be where it comes front and center to someone's awareness of, oh, okay, this is not the body that I want, right? There are people who I've worked with who have maybe known but kind of pushed it away for years or even decades, hoping that it would go away, and it just didn't. And there's people who they have a sense that something is different or something is off, especially I think people in the non-binary community, but they may not have any words for it because it's not always easy to access that information or even take the brave step of looking into it to trying to understand it. There's a whole host of experiences for the person who is transgender, and there's a whole host of experiences for the family members, the spouses, the partners, the children who find out as someone is embarking on their transition process. So that's why I really like this work so much is that there's so many layers and there's so many different choices and decision points along the way as far as how somebody wants to proceed with this process. What does it look like? Who's impacted? You know, all that stuff. 
I am imagining into the work, which isn't necessarily the work I do, but it's the work you're sharing with us. And I'm imagining into it that as you're unpacking all these layers and helping your clients to make their own decisions, that there's so much self-discovery and the layers of the work are so deep and rich. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think that what a lot of people struggle with as far as like the foundational layer of this work is our discomfort with not knowing or sitting with the uncertainty. That is a huge pain point for just about everybody I work with because this whole experience shakes up your sense of certainty and where you thought life was headed, right? Whether you are the person who's questioning your gender or transitioning or you're the family member that's somehow affected by it, there's so much work around getting comfortable with being uncomfortable or getting comfortable with maybe not necessarily knowing the exact perfect answer right away. That's a lot of the work I do. It's a lot of the work I do as well in a really different context. I'm sure. But yeah. I find that that is the crux, I think, of humanity. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. There are so many different ways to get to that space. And so much of the work that you and I both do and so many other therapists is around holding that space in a mm-hmm. sacred way for that work to really unfold for each individual. Yeah, Absolutely. And I guess for me, this is where becoming a mom has kind of enriched my therapy practice because having a child anyway, but especially having a toddler has taught me that I am not in control really of of much. The predictability of where every day is headed is not really there. And so that letting go of total control and certainty, me experiencing that has really helped me be able to hold that space in that way for my clients. Oh, gosh, you just opened up so much right there that I want to open up. (laughs) I'm just going to throw a little antidote out there, a little story. Sure. I just recently sent my oldest daughter away for a week of farm camp. And as she was packing and getting ready to go, she said to me, I'm not going to have very many choices to make. I'm going to be able to choose which leg I want to put in my pants first. Oh, (laughs) jeez. But I think it's really illustrative, right, of... Mm -hmm. We go through life and sometimes we feel totally out of control. Sometimes we don't know which way is up and which way is down. Sometimes we feel over controlled, but there are Mm -hmm. always choices, right? Even if it's as simple as which leg am I putting in my pants first? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I highlight that a lot with my clients because I think when we feel that we don't have choices or we only have one of two choices, it's incredibly disempowering and anxiety provoking. So, you know, right up front, I have the conversation with my clients that, you know, this is kind of an open space. You can take your time with deciding what you want to do in your gender journey. You can decide ultimately to do nothing at all, but sit here and have a safe space to express things. And that's okay. There are so many choices. And it's interesting how... I can see for some people that is so deeply unsettling that it's kind of shaking up their worldview, perhaps, of, wow, I can do anything I want. There's choices and there's not like a neat and easy formula to follow. I think a lot of people actually kind of crave that, but that's not typically how the world works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I joke with clients sometimes that, you know, I don't have a transition worksheet. I don't have like a choose your own adventure or a workflow. It's a very individualized process. And so you started talking a little bit about letting go, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's interesting because it's a term or words that I've had a lot of clients have some really strong reactions around. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of grief work involved in letting go. Yes, absolutely. Can you go there a little bit with us? Because I think what I'm imagining, the deeper we get into this conversation, is that much of this work you do around holding this space for people who are transitioning and claiming their identities, authoring their identities, it's a really existential process, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's different aspects to letting go for and grieving. For the clients that I work with, there can be an intense grieving of, wow, this is my life. This isn't going away. This transgender identity 
is not something that's easily welcomed by everybody because it's not, even in 2018, it's not an easy process, right? So there's this grieving of, okay, I thought that my life was going to end up this way. I thought I would fit into society. I thought I'd, you know, maybe go to college and find a partner and get married and start a family and just kind of life would be easy. And yet this persistent gender identity that is not in alignment with someone's sex assigned at birth kind of really throws all of that into question. So there's a grieving of, okay, life can continue, obviously, but it's not the way I thought it would be. It's going to be a lot harder. I'm facing a lot of stuff, you know, in terms of potential rejection from family, from friends, from work, from society at large. And then there's also a parallel process with whoever is affected by someone's transition, you know, because as someone transitions, so does their family too, right? So if they have a spouse or a partner or even kids, you know, now identifying themselves as the family members of someone who is trans brings up all sense of uncertainty about what does this mean for our family now? What does this mean for our relationship, grieving a sense of comfort or predictability. You know, sometimes for spouses and partners, what comes up too is how far does this transition go? And within that is the question of what do I have to face, you know, depending on how many other people ultimately find out. How does this maybe disrupt all of my relationships in my life? So there's that aspect of it. There's also for the clients that I'm working with who are perhaps coming to me later in life, there's a sense of grieving of time lost of, wow, you know, when I, maybe when I was in high school, I didn't have it as easy as kids nowadays. I couldn't tell my family or I did tell my family and they rejected me or they told me to, you know, get over it. So there's a sense of all this lost time because they couldn't be who they truly were because it wasn't a safe environment or a safe time. And so, especially when someone is coming to me, you know, say in their 50s or 60s, there's the challenge of, okay, how far do I even go with this? And what's the point? How many years do I have left? Or at this point in life, what's physically even possible in terms of my transition, you know? Or sometimes there's a sense of loss of, gosh, I'd really love to transition, but I don't want this to affect my kids. I can't let them know. Or I can't put my job in jeopardy. So there's grieving, there's oftentimes a sense of being trapped in some way, depending on someone's circumstances too. So it's really heavy work, but it's really rewarding to see people move through that process and find themselves and their sense of who they are. It's just, I don't even know how to articulate it, but to see someone that I'm working with get to a point where they are comfortable in their own skin, it's just such an honor for me to see that. It's pretty amazing. So. I'm going to turn the tables around on you a little bit, if that's Uh okay. Sure. You talked a little bit about how motherhood changed your work. Mm -hmm. How has your work changed you? That's a really great question. It's changed me in a lot of ways, especially being in private practice, especially has been a huge exercise for me in personal development and looking at my own junk. Go there. Yeah, you know, it just occurred to me that I go through some of the processes that I describe my clients going through in that the world of private practice is also rich with, wow, you could do anything you want. There are all these choices. You can see who you want. You can work the hours that you want. You can design the practice of your dreams, not fitting into some agency mold. And it's just occurring to me that as I went through that process, it has been really overwhelming and unsettling for me as well, too. Yeah. So it's been rewarding, but it's... if we're on a journey of becoming who we are Mm -hmm. or remembering who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a huge takeaway from the work that I do and why I'm so passionate about it is that I am reminded time and time again how powerful it is for people to just be heard and seen. That I, you know, like when I was an intern in grad school, I felt such anxiety and such pressure to have the right answer, the perfect intervention, you know, the perfect response for my client to heal them right away. And now, As I'm moving into, you know, I'm coming up on four years in private practice, I'm realizing that really, 
I'd say easily 80 to 90% of the work that I do is just seeing and hearing people, allowing them to be who they really are. You know, such an amazing part of my practice is when clients have the trust in me to come to my office and it's maybe the first time that they've presented as their true gender identity. When they do that in my office, when they sit in my space, just experiencing, dressing, and presenting as who they really are inside, that's so powerful, you know? And it's not about me having the perfect reflection or the perfect homework assignment for them. It's about just seeing them and allowing them to be there and to be held in that space. It's pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. Yeah. That's, you know... I love it. I really love my work. I'm totally geeking out right now about the work that I get to do every day. I'm very grateful. Because you do such amazing work. Now, one of the things that you recently started to do, aside from the trainings, is that you're running a group called The Spot. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so excited about this. So, you know, I'm looking at the end of last year, I decided that for 2018, I really want to do more specifically to support the loved ones of the trans community because they need support and love too. So what I did was I've started a free monthly support group called The Spot. The reason it's named that is it's an acronym for Spouses and Partners of Trans Folk. And it's just a really beautiful space for us to get together every month and people who are themselves identifying as cisgender or gender conforming and they are married or partnered with someone who is identifying as transgender, they really have a very unique set of anxieties and fears and concerns and questions that they may not be feeling that they have any space to talk about that with. And for me, the purpose of this group is twofold. It's one, it's it's to help hold them and give them that space to express whatever's on their mind, good, bad, ugly. And it's also about giving them a sense of community, helping them realize that they are not alone in this experience, because I know that that is so healing. And that's why I believe so, so much in the power of groups, that when you enter into a group space, when you take that brave leap, you are opening yourself up to seeing other people who are experiencing a huge thing in their lives, just like you are. Mm. A very specific experience that brings up anxieties or discomfort or questions that you may be afraid to tell anybody because you think they won't understand or they may judge you. So with this space, I decided to start it because in my area, there wasn't anything specifically for spouses and partners. And I was really kind of shocked by that. There's fantastic support groups in general for families, like PFLAG is phenomenal. But I've had, you know, several spouses of my clients say to me, you know, PFLAG, I went there and I was the only person who was a spouse. You know, there was parents there of LGBT youth, but there wasn't any spouses. And so I was in a group of people, but I felt totally alone. And, you know, hearing that more than once got me thinking, okay, I want to create a space specifically to this. And so it started just last week, we had our first meeting, and it was really amazing. It's so fantastic to see people who, when they initially describe their circumstances, they're not exactly the same. And yet these deep issues are what they have in common. There's this thread that when they open up, there's this thread that ties them together and brings a sense of community that is so healing and so transformative for these people. So I'm really excited to be offering this. I'm really excited to see where it goes too. It sounds amazing. I can imagine that it goes pretty far, even beyond your own community. Yeah, Yeah, it's really great. I'm also thinking, as you're talking about community and the power of community and these threads that help to tie people together, as they start kind of hearing the ripples of the stories that they're sharing and that they're hearing other people sharing and the experiences that come forth, which are very much a, oh, I can be me here. You get it. Mm -hmm. You might not have lived my experience, but I'm not an oddball to you. Maybe... This is a place where I can let myself belong. Yes, absolutely. I think belonging is, aren't we all looking for that, right? A sense of belonging and connection and validation. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much. 
What do you find in your work, aside from the community that kind of helps to also hold the space for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that I am very transparent right from the start with my clients that there is no formula and wherever they're at is completely okay to just kind of go with wherever they want to go. And, you know, for example, some people come to see me because they just need like an assessment letter for say hormones or surgery. And that's totally fine. If they're really clear on where they want to go, I help with that. But also if people are just really sitting in that uncertainty and that, I don't know, I know something's weird or off, but I don't know what this means for me. I'm questioning my gender. There's space for that too. And I'm really clear with people that 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 is also welcome here, that there is not one particular transition plan for everyone. And and there's no outline in how one transitions. Exactly. And I think, you know, sadly, what I've heard from quite a few of my clients is that within the trans community, people are getting the message at times that if you don't want to do this, you're not really trans. If you still have this desire as far as how you present, then you're not really in the club. And it makes me so sad to hear when clients tell me that because it's already a really stigmatized community, a very vulnerable community. And so for people to turn within that community and hear that message, it really turns people off. It makes them afraid to express themselves or explore the nuances of their transition process. So I just reiterate with my clients a lot that there is no one right way to do this. And you're allowed to take as long as you need to figure it out. And I'm here with you. And that's okay. That is beautiful. And I think it's also highlighting another piece of humanity, which is Mm -hmm. that, you know, in our quest for belonging, the thing that a lot of us come up against is othering. Yes, absolutely. And it breaks my heart when I hear how people are experiencing that. So I just work really hard to try to make sure that people don't feel that way in my office, just right from the outset. I try to let people know that wherever you are is completely okay. And also, you know, I think I communicate that too with within the group that I started that, you know, I want to let spouses and partners know that even if you have negative thoughts or feelings about this process, it's safe for you to say that here. It's okay for you to say, I'm not sure we're going to stay together. I'm not sure I can handle this. Or I don't understand this. And I'm afraid to tell my spouse because I don't want to burden them with my stuff. So I think through that avenue too, I really hold that space for, you know, you're allowed to say whatever here. You're allowed to get that off your chest and be vulnerable And so then we can help to support you to work through that. That is gorgeous. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks. (laughs) How would you recommend that we help others within our communities, within our lives, people who maybe we even come across and we go, oh, gee, I don't know. Like, maybe they're on the binary, but maybe they're not. How do we be inclusive and, and just help support and hold a space where they can be who they are, whether it's in therapy or just in life? Yeah. You know, what I hear time and again from a lot of my clients, and I don't mean to say that this is everyone's goal, but a common theme I hear a lot from the people who identify as transgender is they feel so much more respected when people ask rather than make assumptions. And so in terms of like, if you're seeing someone or you're interacting with them in some way and you don't know what pronouns to use, do the vulnerable thing and just ask them. It's probably not what we instinctively would do because it's a way of saying, hey, I don't really understand this situation. But by and large, a lot of people that I have worked with say that they would much rather be asked than just have an assumption and be misgendered. Another thing that's really helpful is if you can be mindful of your language, you know, if say you're, you're in a crowd and you're trying to refer to someone, you're trying to, I don't know, get their attention rather than saying, oh, hey, ma'am, or hey, sir, you know, you could say something like, oh, hey, that person over there in the red flannel shirt, right? Using non-gendered language to describe people. Because if you think about it, it's just such a habit for us to put people into these two little boxes, but there's not a need to. We could easily refer to people that way. Or, hey, that person with the Yankees baseball cap, right? That's another easy, quick step you could start building into your awareness to create a more welcoming and affirming space for people. I mean, those little gestures actually really do mean quite a bit. They really do. And, you know, I was recently having a conversation with people in my life 
around this type of stuff. And one thing that really percolates within me is that our English language anyway doesn't really hold a space for the non-binary. What I was noticing, some of the cisgendered people I was talking to were basically saying that they're a little uncomfortable using the they and the there because they're plurals. Mm -hmm. And it's not the non-genderedness of it, but the plurality of it that they're Mm -hmm. kind of flipping over as they're trying to get those words out of their mouth. Yeah, it's so interesting how we can get so tripped up. And so I guess I would say to get on my little soapbox here about that, that maybe our discomfort with the grammar, the plurality of it is nothing in comparison to the discomfort that people feel when they are misgendered, misunderstood, or invalidated for who they really are. Oh, that is such an important piece to put out there. Thanks. There's my soapbox. I'm off it now. (laughs) Go back on. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is the perfect place for it. Yeah. I just, you know, another big thing I've, going back to one of your earlier questions about how my work, how has impacted me is that I just hear so much from clients, little simple gestures that can really either convey respect and affirmation or disrespect and hurt, you know? So I just think it's so important for us all to be really conscious of the assumptions that we make about people based on how they look or the questions that we might ask. If we know for sure that someone is definitely transgender, um, kind of checking our curiosity and where we go with that conversation. You know, for example, when I'm working with clients in the coming out process, I prepare them for some really intensely personal questions because unfortunately, that's what a lot of them face. You know, when someone comes out as transgender, nine times out of 10, they are also asked about their sexuality or what's in their pants or how far they have gone in their transition, which is so disrespectful. So I just wish that people would be more conscious of those kind of questions and that exploration and that violation of people's privacy. You know, just because someone has told you that they are transgender or non-binary or gender questioning, it's not an invitation for you to violate their privacy with all of these questions. Boundaries are boundaries. Boundaries are boundaries, right? I would be deeply offended and shocked if someone asked about, you know, my genitalia. That's not okay. That's not a part of like normal conversation. And yet, sadly, so many of my clients get those questions. So I guess that would be what I would hope people do is just be really compassionate and conscious of how difficult it is to navigate the world when you are not fitting into either of the two neat little boxes that we're told we have to fit in to have compassion, to show respect, and to just kind of be conscious of the words we're saying in terms of what we're saying to people and how the words we're using to describe them. Talking about kindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something that I think, you know, as a society, we are moving away from. But fortunately, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm not in agreement with the fact that we're moving away from it. But I think that, you know, it's these little pieces of kindness, of respecting others. Yeah. Of not rejecting them, of mm-hmm. not making them feel like a freak show or a circus act or putting them on display in some way that you wouldn't want to be seen. Absolutely. You know what I hear time and again from people I work with is their ultimate goal is to just go about their lives and not be noticed. To just, you know, I've I've had clients say to me, like, Sarah, I just want to go to the grocery store and not have to deal with any looks or any questions. I just want to be able to, you know, go out to the movies and not be given the triple look if my picture on my ID doesn't match how I'm looking right now or the name doesn't match. I just want to be able to go through life just like everybody else and just not be on display. While claiming my identity. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Because I'm not going to go into hiding in order to not be on display. Exactly. Right. It's that balance of just being able to move about the world, be seen for who you really are, and not have the successive attention drawn to yourself. So I'm thinking a little bit as you're talking and I'm hearing certain words come forth that the title of this podcast is Practice of Being Seen. Yes. Right? There's a reason behind that title. And I think in many ways, being seen is a very courageous and hard act. It's also one that helps us to, especially when we're doing it inwardly and with the right 
collection of people around us. It's one that really helps us to get to know our identity and see ourselves. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah. an element of practice in here. And whether that's practicing a new identity or how that's going to show up in the world, or even if it's just remembering that it takes connection and grounding to see yourself every day and to show up authentically as who you are. Because I think it's so easy to forget that Mm -hmm. this is a muscle. Yeah, absolutely. Every day I am just aware of the fact that the clients that come to me are they're engaging in a process of exploring and clarifying their gender identity. And they are also doing some deep personal work of looking at themselves and making the choices, being aware of where they want to go with this, how they want to show themselves authentically to the world and facing some really uncomfortable stuff that comes up with that. People often bump up against their own limitations with this, right? So I just think, for example, like we were talking about people not wanting to be on display before. When I'm working with someone who is going through this process and they are just inherently a shy or introverted person, that's a lot of deep work to sift through because at some point in this process, as you are physically transitioning or coming out to people, you have to really be exposed in a way that is just uncomfortable to your core, right? If someone, you know, is just inherently introverted or shy or very private, this is the opposite of what they want to do. It's a really high price to pay for living their authentic lives. And so there's a lot of deep work about how do you take care of yourself through this process? How do you honor your limitations while being true to yourself? And so a lot of times I work with clients about setting boundaries around disclosures and coming out whether it's with family or at work, because this just brings up such intense emotional pain. Are there any threads in this topic of how to get uncomfortable with these exposures, with how to set these boundaries that feel worthy of sharing here? Yeah, I do the work with clients that I think all of us would benefit from doing from time to time is just Mm -hmm. checking in with ourselves about what feels safe, what feels okay, And what doesn't, you know, to be in a present and conscious state rather than reactive. I think by and large, we all benefit from that work that we can get into a really reactive place of, oh, someone asked me this question, so I have to respond. Or, you know, oh, I came out to this person and they asked me to keep it a secret from someone else, so I have to do that. And so a lot of the work that I do with my clients is just really shining a light on that and say, no, that is a choice you can make, but are there other choices you can make? What is in your heart? What feels right in terms of who you want to come out to or how you want to handle things? You know, To give my clients the power to set their own boundaries and limits around this entire process, to not feel that, okay, well, if I'm perhaps hurting someone by coming out or transitioning, I therefore have to give up all my power in terms of how that comes out or how far I take this. And so, yeah, I really help people hone in on, no, you have choices and you have intuition or you have just kind of your own messages within your heart about what feels right for you. So that comes up a lot. (laughs) Yeah. The work is to know that. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, we all, I think from time to time, and I include myself in this, we all just kind of get caught up in the day-to-day or just meeting other people's demands and we don't take the time to think about, well, what do I really need or what do I want to do or how do I want to handle this situation separate of the noise of what other people might say or do in response? What feels right in my heart? I love this. Separating it out from the noise of everybody Mm -hmm. else and their preconceived notions. What is it that you know within yourself? Mm -hmm. And how do you align yourself with that knowing. I find that this is a slow process. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's slow and it's powerful. And I think it's long lasting. You know, I think that the slow speed is worth it because it's really deep stuff. It's empowering people to not just look at how they want to handle their transition process, but looking at, okay, well, what other areas of my life 
Do I have power that maybe I've been giving over to other people? What other ways can I set boundaries with people and circumstances? So I think it has a really beautiful ripple effect. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the stuff that I'm seeing that you're sharing with us about your work and how it is so much like some of the work I'm doing with often cisgendered heterosexual couples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, to me, there are so many parallels, which has really, you know, come into my awareness listening to your podcast as well, because the search for identity and belonging and community and acceptance, it's something that is, I think, just part of the human experience. I think that there's a spotlight on it within my community because of the transition process and what it entails. But, you know, ultimately, I think at the heart of what I do is, is people trying to find their identities and being okay with what feels best for them versus what everybody else wants or expects from them. And being okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also that other piece of where do I fit in the world? Do I fit in this relationship with you in my life? And so much of the work that you're sharing that you do is also with partners and spouses. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking through about the ripple effect of when one person is questioning their identity in any way. I mean, even if we're just questioning where do I want to live, the ripple effect of how does that also affect the person that they're choosing to spend their life with. Yeah, I think there is so often in my work, there's this tension between holding on to what we know now, what's familiar, what's safe, versus letting go and moving into the unknown. You know, the risk of that is so heavy. It weighs so much on my clients, especially if they're partnered or married, this risk of, gosh, this is really what's going to make me happy and feel whole and make me feel like I'm living my best life, but the cost is dramatic or it could be dramatic if my spouse or my partner leaves me. Is that worth it? It's often a question that comes up in the work that I do with my clients. And it's holding... I'm adding emphasis to because I think that's Mm. the essence of this work, right? It's holding a space for all of that uncertainty. Absolutely. Yeah. The the place of uncertainty where none of us like to sit, right? The holding of that space so that we can just kind of see if we can find an answer within ourselves rather than rushing to the right answer. So I'm going to go ahead and maybe ask one of the harder questions, but I can imagine that you're often bouncing around in here and you're holding space for people to make whatever decisions that they are sitting with Mm -hmm. and that sometimes those decisions can come and sometimes you stay in that space of not knowing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can even just be the not knowing becomes the space that you sit in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How do you help your clients to tolerate that space? You know, I just really honor and highlight the value of it for them. I talk to my clients about how we're all kind of conditioned to have certainty and the right answer all the time and the stress that that inherently creates. So, you know, just really emphasizing for them that there's often a lot of insight that comes from the struggle itself, the struggle of wrestling, you know, the choice between two or three different options, avoiding pain isn't always, and in fact, it's it's often not what leads to growth. So I just make sure that my clients know that I talk about that process of oftentimes pain has a purpose. Avoiding pain can lead to growth. Pain has a purpose. These are things that you say a lot. I think avoiding pain does not lead to growth oftentimes. I think, oh, okay. Yeah, avoiding pain is, I think, what keeps us feeling safe and familiar. And it often leads us to giving power over to someone or something else. Yes. I often talk about how pain is information. Absolutely. That is one of my biggest quotables probably, is that pain is information that I find it's almost as if I like to think of pain being the navigator, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to let it be the driver. Oh, I love that analogy. That's great. I'm going to have to borrow that. (laughs) (laughs) 
I also talk to my clients often when they're sitting in those really uncomfortable, hard spaces of indecision. Mm-hmm. Decades ago, I worked in the field of oncology, and one of my jobs was to help patients and families have conversations with medical teams around treatment options. But so mm-hmm. often, the decision was a decision of indecision, was of not making a decision. And my work was to validate that that also was a really good decision. Yeah. It was the decision they were making. There was no right or wrong. This is not somebody else's life to determine the course of it is yours. Yeah. And you know, a parallel that I have more recently started to draw for people is that this is a parallel process of trying to fit into the binary of male or female, that that doesn't work for everybody. And so similarly, choosing clearly one choice or the other does not work for everybody, that it is okay. And sometimes it's the best decision to stay somewhere in the middle or stay in a place of indecision or delaying the decision. So you're really that has giving people permission to just let go of the binary. Yeah. Yeah. Let go of, you know, the binary, the cling to certainty, let go of the ego that tells us that we have to have the right answers and we must know exactly what we're doing all the time. Because that, the resistance to not fitting into that mold of knowing the right answer all the time, the resistance to that idea is what I think causes so much pain that's unnecessary. I just think if we could give ourselves permission to just kind of go with where life takes us or where our heart is taking us, that the pain and the anxiety will definitely be reduced. There's so much pressure and tension that we put on ourselves that we don't need to. That is just so Zen though. I'm in agreement with you. It's also very zen. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, and I'm very upfront with my clients too that like, look, I aspire to be that and there are days that I am there and there are days that I am not there. So I think that that helps in my work with my clients too is that I'm transparent about like, you know, this is a process. This is a practice of being at that place. And some days you're going to nail it and some days you're going to be a hot mess and that's okay too. Yes. Oh, this was delicious. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing so much of who you are and what your work is with us. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to have this conversation. This has been great. Wonderful. So we're going to include a link in our show notes, but go ahead and just share again where our listeners can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So my website is transitionstherapyllc.com. That's a great space to find out more about the work that I do, upcoming events, trainings, my support group. And on my website, there's a link so that you can email me or call me from there. Another place is also on Facebook. I have a business page under my practice name, which is Transitions Therapy LLC. And I'm on there quite a bit. So either way, if people want to reach out to me, I would love to connect and continue this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. As with each of us, trans people want to belong. They don't want to be misgendered, misunderstood, or invalidated. What they need is our respect, compassion, and awareness as they figure out who they are and how they fit into the world. After all, that's what each of us deserves, regardless of how we factor into society's norms. Learn more about Sarah's upcoming events, including The Spot, a free monthly support group for the spouses and partners of trans folk, and her intro training to trans affirmative care. There's a link in our show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about my relationship therapy practice or intensive couples retreats in New York, go to connectfulness.com. I'd love for you to help support the Pobscast, and there's two ways to do that. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and come along and join our online discussion group. We meet the last Thursday of the month through September 2018, and we're journeying together and remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. There's also a link in our show notes. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing behind-the-scenes support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidneystone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed the show, and you'll join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. Mm-hmm.